economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. So today we wanted to talk about rights. We're going to let our philosophy professor infuse our minds with what's right. And I don't know if that means it's going to be what's wrong or not, but uh, what does it mean for these rights that we have that we think we enjoy in the United States? Do they get pushed too far or are they just about right? That's way too many rights in that. So Justin, take it away. That's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually have a bit of a bone to pick with economists on this point uh, lately. And it concerns the way I think I see a lot of people arguing about lockdown policies. Um, Okay. And so we said this is going to be about rights. And what I want to contrast rights with, I want to talk about a rights-based approach to argument and a utilitarian approach to argument. Now, one of the things that we have seen is we have seen a lot of argument going on in the public sphere about what kind of approach to the pandemic will be best overall, right? Will be the best for everybody. And so we get these competing claims about, well, what we wanna do is keep everybody safe. And therefore what we need to do is lock everybody in their homes and not let anybody out, you know, live in your pod, et cetera. And then I know me personally, I have read a lot of what I think are very good arguments by people that I like very much that show, I think, that these lockdown policies, and in particular, the very strong lockdown policies, don't work. They don't even do the thing that they are purported to do. So if we look at the difference between, say, California and Florida, this is a, you know, a metric that is, us- is often brought up by the great Tom Woods, right, who is... <laughs> who will say, look at the difference between California and Florida. They have virtually identical case numbers, very similar death numbers. California has been locked down for 10 months and Florida has been open the whole time. Furthermore, Florida is populated with old people and California is one of the youngest states in the nation. California is one of the youngest states. Yeah, certainly much younger than Florida, right? I would guess that. So, and what I want to say to this is, look, it's great that we can put forward these arguments to show that these lockdown approaches do not do the thing that they purport to do, that they are not in everybody's best interest. But I think after 10 months, I want to say not only do lockdowns not work, arguing that lockdowns don't work doesn't work. <laughs> that is, I don't think it's, uh, it's argumentatively working, even though I think that argument is valid and sound. And what I would say that maybe we ought to start talking about instead are things that, you know, traditionally we call rights. And when you have a right to do something or you have a right to something, 
What that traditionally means is that you have a right to do that regardless of whether or not it is in your best interest. So when you have the right to speak freely, somebody can't say, well, actually, we're going to stop you from speaking because it's not actually in your best interest to say that thing. Or if you have, you know, the reason, you know, traditionally people were still able to smoke cigarettes is because they go, look, it's my body. I have a right to do this, even if it's bad for me. Right. So it's a little different than saying, you know, what's best for yourself. You do what you want. The right is I can do it regardless of whether it's in my best interest or not. Or not. That is what a right is. Okay. If you can't do that, I am saying you don't have a right anymore. Right. That is what a right is. Being able to do something, even if it isn't in your best interest. And so I think that the correct approach, if you were to fight lockdown policies, you know, if you did think that lockdowns were wrong, and, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody else here, but I certainly do. I think they're disastrous. I think they are, you know, unproductive, but more fundamentally, I do think they are violations of rights. And guess what? It's not in my best interest, but even if it were, you still aren't permitted to do the thing that you, uh, you are purporting to get me to do. The entire point of being a rational, autonomous human being, which is kind of the background assumption that our political philosophy is based on, is that humans are rational and autonomous. If you want to get somebody to do something, you have to convince them to do it unless they're directly and immediately harming somebody else. Otherwise, and if they don't want to, too bad. You don't get to force them to do it. So I really think at this point, you know, you can show anybody as many graphs as you want that these lockdown policies don't work. And it seems to me that that argument doesn't work. And the way you have to actually fight these people is by saying that it's a rights violation. And I think that if you look at the way successful successful arguments against overreach have always actually been uh, litigated and argued, they are usually in terms of rights mm-hmm. rights violations. Because that goes more to the heart of the law. Yeah, and it it actually goes more also to the heart of you know people's emotional response. Is that look, you know. This utilitarian argument that, well, it'll be slightly better for you if they do blah, 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 <laughs> that appeals to a very small number of people where, hey, man, your rights are being violated. Yeah. That's, that's a different kind of argument. Yeah. So, look, I agree with Tom Woods when he says, look, I can show you all these graphs. I go, great. You've convinced me. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not convincing right. the people that actually need to be convinced. Yeah. And I don't know what will other than uh, rights-based arguments. Well, I don't know. And it could be a supplementary thing of following the rights-based argument. I mean, it's just there. I mean, it is evidence after maybe somebody says, well, maybe you're right. Your rights are violated. And then all of a sudden, oh, and I'm, by the way, I've got all these graphs and evidence too, you know, so. Yeah. So I'm, of course, being intentionally sure. provocative no, I got laying you. all this yeah, blame yeah. In, in your guys' court, yeah. right? The economists are ruining well, everything. Well, I, I, uh, I don't, I don't know about, you mentioned Tom Woods. I don't know about Tom Woods in particular, but I will defend rather economists in general on this. And I won't defend like a utilitarian vision, but I think that there's something really valuable that's used in economics a lot, which is like a a means ends argument. That is, if we can show that your means or your way of doing something is not compatible with like your goal, then in theory, a rational person is going to be convinced by this. Or, or, you know, someone who is interested in being uh, finding the truth is going to be convinced maybe would be a better way to say it. 
I think the reason that economists focus on this is because it's the only comparative advantage economists have. Uh, <laughs> and and, and I, I don't mean that in, in like a bad way. I mean, if economists argued from a rights perspective, there would actually be no use for economic analysis. And so like a classic argument is the minimum wage that, well, the minimum wage leads to unemployment, which actually hurts the people who the minimum wage claims to help, right? That's the economist argument. That argument's totally unimportant if no matter whether it hurts or helps the unemployed, we just pivot to, well, the minimum wage is actually wrong because it, you know, violates people's rights. A right to so, earn so a minimum. I, I'm not, a, I'm X. not, yeah, exactly. I'm not against rights-based, arg- rights-based arguments. They have their place and they're good. But I am against economists quickly pivoting to them because then you know the conclusion already. I mean, we, we might as well not even do, you know, our supply and demand analysis to determine what works and what doesn't, because at the end, we're always just going to at the bottom say, well, but it violates rights. So, you know, even if it doesn't cause unemployment, it violates rights. No, I think economists should take, you know, the economic conclusions as far as possible before moving to that, though I don't disagree with Justin that perhaps rhetorically this isn't working right now. Well, I, I guess I wanted to first say I did, I was okay with the lockdown in its infancy. I think there was enough uncertainty to not know for sure you were harming your neighbor or not by going outside. I, I, and I'm talking the first two weeks of this thing breaking. So I, I think I said on a previous podcast eight months ago or so that I was okay with that lockdown, but I think it should have been quickly released once more information came out, you know, wearing masks or some sort of adaptation that it should have went. And I I certainly haven't seen any evidence to suggest uh, lockdowns or justified the rest of the way after that first couple week period, because they're just, I've continued to look at Kansas data. Uh, We we just went up to 50% of the ICU beds, highest it's been since I've been monitoring it in Kansas available. So to me, it was always about hospital capacity, as long as we can care for people who are sick. And even though we we might be pushing it right up to the edge, I don't think we should lock down unless our hospitals were going to be completely overwhelmed, people getting served in the hallways and not getting cared for properly. That's not right. I would, I would be, we'd have to take some drastic measures if that was going to be the case. So anyway, that's my feeling on the lockdown part. I feel like my rights have been violated a little bit that so I'm kind of with Justin on me having COVID back in late October. I was immune. Why can't I come out of my house? Why, why do I have to wear this mask? Why do I, you know, whatever. Now I did wear the mask and, and to me, the mask is a relatively low cost measure to stay in keep your social capital and it's not a battle worth fighting. It's like, again, kind of rationally, looked at the mask wearing, even if I felt my rights were being violated, that I guess maybe that would be from a utility argument that the benefits of wearing the mask uh, were still outweighing the cost, taking all of that into account. So yeah, I think Peter's right that we need the, and I think maybe that's where I was going with my supplementary comment that we still need that at the end of the day with a, with a rights-based argument. But I think at the core, it starts there. And I think economists sometimes drift away from that. Certainly there's economists across the board. There are Marxist economists out there. So what is your, what is your core? Do you start with rights and you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt others? Is that your core foundation for the market system? Or is your core foundation for the market system trying to find out a way that we can all collectively work as one big happy family? 
right? And I think economists vary on those core beliefs and that's where some of our calculations and opinions can come out differently. I agree with that variation. And I think one one argument, and we might, this might end up taking the rest of the podcast or maybe it'll be short. Well, you can tee it up as a cliffhanger if you want. Sure. I, I think the tricky thing about the rights-based argument is it's a lot less straightforward to me, or at least to the general population, than the does it work or does it not argument. And what I mean by that is this. The arguments coming out of pro-lockdown sides tend to also be rights-based arguments. That is by going outside with some positive probability that you're going to infect other people with coronavirus, you're actually violating the rights of other people, especially like the more vulnerable populations. This tends to be like the rhetoric that's used. And so, whereas I, you know, it's really clear for me in the evidence that these lockdowns aren't doing what they were intended to do. What's less clear is that we can make a solid rights-based argument that's going to convince people. Because there seem to be different ideas of who, well, whose rights are actually being violated. And I think talking through that would be interesting after we come back, figuring out like who, you know, who does have the right here? Do you have the right to go outside from your house or do other people have the right to not feel like they're going to be infected by you while you're outside? I yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth exploring. I can't wait to hear what Justin says after the break, because I can definitely say I've been talking until I was blue in the face for the last eight months about the science, the evidence, the graphs and charts and it's gotten me nowhere. I mean, I feel like I, I I don't think I've convinced anybody that didn't already see it my way in the first place. So can't wait to hear what Justin says. We'll be back in just a moment. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider one time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. We've got student events and other things going on at Ottawa University each and every term. Last night we had a movie night talking about uh, the social dilemma and, and its overlap with government policy. We've got book clubs coming up talking about federalism, freedom, and flourishing. An Urbit uh, reading club and uh, knowledge on what Urbit's all about as well as the PPE League in our first event against Emporia State University. So if you know someone who's looking for something like that, come and see us, Peter, Russ, or Justin today. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gordoninstitute.org. Okay, we're back. And Justin, lay it on us. What, what can we do to get this rights-based argument out there? Uh, okay, so first I have some replies to both Peter and Russ here. So the first one, Peter was saying, and I, I think I'd want to push back on this a little bit, that most of the arguments for lockdowns tend to be in terms of rights and that rights, these rights arguments can be kind of vague. And I think I'd want to push back a little bit on both of those points because I see a lot of the arguments, at least the more serious arguments coming from more of a utilitarian-based approach. And that just might be my, me, uh, the way, you know, where I've been looking. But I see a lot more arguments about like, well, this town didn't lock down, now they did lock down, and look at the, you know, and of course they, you know, sure. screw up the x-axis of the graph or whatever. And, and when you say utilitarian in this respect, you're talking about some sort of nebulous social utility function that we're, we're serving the common good by locking down, for instance, or whatever? The argument that it's everyone is better off if we do this okay. in the aggregate. Yeah. yeah. 
And so that's the first claim. One is that I actually do see a lot of arguments for lockdowns based purely on this uh, utilitarian calculus and this idea that, well, I know it's going to, you know, it'll be better for all of us if we do this. But the second point that this, that rights arguments tend to be a little bit more vague, I would also want to push back on that a little bit because I think that the rights-based argument for lockdowns that people are putting forward you know, doesn't your grandma have a right to not be killed if she goes, you know, to Home Depot or whatever? <laughs> I think those are more bald-facedly insane than the utilitarian <laughs> arguments for lockdowns, right? So I think you have to know how to read a graph and what constitutes kind of A-B testing in order to even understand why a lot of uh, the arguments for lockdowns from a utilitarian perspective don't work, right? You can just uh, you can just be shown a graph of cases going up in Florida, and then you know you'll say, "Look, they don't, you know, they're not, uh, they don't have a mask mandate in Florida," and that'll convince a bunch of people who don't know how to, you know, compare Florida and California or whatever. Yeah. But I think most people, when they hear things like, "Well, doesn't my grandma have a right, you know, to go outside?" and that means therefore that you don't have a right to go outside. Right. right. It's one I or think, the other. Yeah. I think more people can see that there's something wrong with that argument then they can see that something's wrong with the utilitarian argument. So I think it's easier to teach people the rights-based argument um, and to see when their rights are being violated by things like a mask, uh, you know, even like a national mask mandate, which I would be against, even though, you know, I'm wearing a mask today. I just think that, you know, if you look around, people who don't want to wear masks don't wear them correctly and therefore they're not doing anything. So so that would be what I would say to Peter. And then what I would say to Russ is, you know, Russ was, uh, you said, you know, you're for the lockdowns in the beginning, but, you know, because we were uncertain and, but you, you would only want them to last for two weeks or whatever, or until that uncertainty, disappeared. until that uncertainty disappeared. And if we go back and look at those podcasts, I think I said the same thing, right? That this is really uncertain and it's really dangerous. But one of the things that we did talk about was, well, it will be really dangerous to give the government this power because they might not get rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I was wrong to even be in favor of the two-week one. I think I should have just drawn a line in the sand and said, no, this is what rights are. Because clearly we were right to be worried that the government would not give up that power once they were granted it. Yeah, certainly it. has proved to be sticky. Yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, once we agree to do this kind of negotiation with the government or where the government goes, well, this will actually be in your best interest. Yeah. And I go, well, you know, it actually might be in my best interest this time. So I'm going to give you the power to do yeah. it, to force me yeah. to do it. What we should say instead is, yeah, it would be in my best interest. And that's why I'm going to do it voluntarily and right. absolutely forbid yeah. you from forcing me to do We're it. We're on the losing side of those types of arguments is what you're highlighting, that the government has coercive power and we only have voluntary power. And so anytime we concede, we've, we've kind of given something more than, than, than we think. And, and you're arguing, I think, don't give up those rights. Yeah, this is an argument Keep for drawing a line in the sand, dude, and saying <laughs> over this line, you do not, yeah. etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, and the stronger point is that, you know, if a right is something that you are permitted or the government is forbidden from stopping you from doing, even if, when it's in their best interest, or even if, if it's in your best interest not to do it, then you need to hold on to that and say, look, yeah. I mean, I used to drive a motorcycle. When I had a mo when I got my motorcycle's license in California, I had to wear a helmet for it. 
when I got my motorcycle, when I came out here and bought a motorcycle, I bought a helmet and I always wore a helmet with my motorcycle. I think it's crazy to drive a motorcycle without a helmet, but I don't like helmet laws. And I have a bunch of friends, some of them getting bad motorcycle accidents who don't wear motorcycle helmets. Yeah. That's so, right. yeah. so I, I could hear an argument coming back like, okay, so let's flip it and say that we're being invaded by, we're in a war or something and, and there's some sort of invasion or attack going on. And the government comes out and says, we're in lockdown, everybody stay in their home, you know, to be, to be safe. Is there something similar that we're okay with that, that we should agree to the government law? Like if we went out of our house, whatever, we could be jailed or punished or something. Is that somehow, is that, is that different or is your argument the same that we should, we have the right to get out of our house? It's just a suggestion. You should stay in your house and because you might be killed or do you still have the right to go out? I literally think the, especially the federal government does not have the right to do that to you and that that should be fought tooth and nail. You can argue for things like that being uh, the municipality level. I'd still fight against it, but for the exact same reason that I think Rights are about drawing lines in the sand. And you have to say, look, if you want me to do these things, you have to convince me first that it's in my best interest and that that ought to motivate me to do it. And secondly, you still have to convince me to do it because I'm still autonomous. I have the freedom to do things that, that aren't in my best interest. Now, maybe I'll stop there because I think Peter wants to say yeah, something. Let, let me try to jump in. And I, I want to give the, the steel man of what I've heard with the, the strongest arguments uh, against this, which is Justin, I can't take my bag of trash and walk over to Kanza Park down the street, the public park, and dump my trash out in Kanza Park and save my trash bag and bring it back home. I'm not allowed to throw, you know, my problems in other people's way in a way that harms them. What is the difference between me dumping my trash in a public park and me going out with, you know, a potential for sickness and getting other people sick. Isn't this the same thing? We, we don't have a right to pollute or make other people less healthy. And so aren't lockdowns just a way to prevent us from doing that? What would happen if you tried to go dump your trash in Kwan? Kanza Park? Kanza. Kanza? Yeah. Oh, is it Kanza? Kanza, Kanza. I'm not even sure. But, yeah. Say somebody, let's say something really bad happened because of your dumping the trash in the park and somebody got hurt. Or even worse yet, died. Yeah, what would be the legal recourse? If they found me, I'd probably be arrested or put, put in put in jail. So to tee this up for what I think might be your solution to the problem, um, what do you <laughs> can you see any ways in which this could be settled? Yeah, and we we've talked about this a little bit, but I I mean I I think that the so now I'm arguing against myself, which is kind of a goofy thing to do on a podcast. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, th I think the way that we normally handle these things is we actually do allow people to engage in activities that might cause them to harm other people. And so like driving is a great example of this. Whenever you drive, there's a non-zero probability that you're going to make a stupid action and then hurt someone else. It happens every day, in fact. And so there's a way that we get through that. And that's basically have legal recourse. And that could be, you know, something small, like a, a non-criminal financial lawsuit, if someone just made like maybe a, a dumb mistake, or if you took an unnecessary risk and that caused someone to be hurt or die, you could even face criminal charges. Yeah. And so I tend to think that like the, the proper response is not like preemptively preventing behaviors, which could be risky. It's responding to when risks turn into actual harm. That That's, that's my take on it. Well, and I think that touches on what I was saying about the uncertainty. I think when you bring up the probabilities of getting in a car rash or whatever, those are known probabilities, right? Through evidence that we've gathered on 
people of certain ages, certain genders, certain whatever, driving certain types of cars, you know, probability of risk is, is kind of a known thing. And risk can be traded and marketed and, and I guess, um, codified in law somehow on what, you know, what maybe can and can't be done. You know, if you, if you drink and drive maybe is a, an example. So driving at 2.0 alcohol level, your probability of getting into a car wreck just escalated greatly above what we think is a, a decent probability. And so we don't allow drinking and driving. It's possible you're going to make it home fine. In fact, you might make it home fine nine out of 10 times, or maybe an unknown amount of times, but that is against the law. We have a law against that because it's a known probability is my point. Whereas when COVID came out the first time, it was so unknown. We didn't know how much we were doing. And that's, I think I'm still holding to in our civil society where we don't have probabilities that can be known very well. And, and the consequences, as far as we know, could be death that a lockdown might be appropriate. But having a line drawn in the sand, I think where, where I would be different than what, what went on was having a clear objective line in the sand. Okay, as soon as the probability drops to something that we know and can measure, which I think was within about two weeks, then it should go away. Well, that's a very utilitarian so. way of looking at it. But I <laughs> well, think, I, and I think this is a good challenge for Justin. I haven't, I haven't thought this far into it, but like we actually do, and maybe the answer is we, we shouldn't do this, but we actually do preemptively prevent people from engaging in things because they're going to be very risky doing it. And so like we don't allow people who are blind to drive. That's, that's something that's against the law. Is that a violation of their rights or, or, or would you say, no, it's not. Mm. So the blind people driving? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. This may be a very extreme example. Yeah, sure. It's, it's a violation of their rights. You can, if you want. Well, I think very few people who are blind would ever be permitted to drive, given that if we know who the blind people are, what's going to happen them, to them the moment they get behind the wheel? Now, I don't think they're making it through their first day driving, right? So look, I think a more interesting case is drunk driving. Sure. And I'm of the unpopular opinion that drunk driving is over-criminalized. I think dangerous driving should be criminalized, but I think there's always uh, people who can drive perfectly well after having one beer. And they also are a lot safer on the road than, let's say, the elderly grandmother who we're all supposed to protect by uh, staying at home. So I think if we are going to actually try to minimize the risk, I mean, it's just a fact that if we look around, we're not, we have, our policies are incoherent when it turns, when it comes to minimizing risk. There are some risks that we do minimize and some that we don't. But my answer to the blind person is, I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, that, <laughs> uh, uh, that's not where I would draw the line in the sand. In fact, I, I, I don't know if that's an issue that I would even draw a line on, right? So uh, can they pass a driving test? Uh, is, it, is it the test that everybody else has to take? Um, probably not, right? But I think a more interesting response to Russ's claim, which, is, which was that he wants to draw a line in the sand after two weeks of the lockdown. So you're still in favor of locking down. Having some sort of objective measure once the probability is known, whatever uh, that means. Yeah. And what I would say to that is, <laughs> congratulations, you just lost the argument to the people. You, you know, you said, oh, I'll give you my rights for two weeks. And then I, I would like you to promise to give them back. I mean, let's go back and live in that moment in March. Yeah. What were we told? 
this will just be for two weeks. That's exactly what they told us. Yeah. Uh, and then they didn't do it. So I think if you're going to draw a line in the sand in this place, the only place to do it is very early on. And you have to do it. You can't give an inch on this idea that, oh, well, I'll let you take away my rights if you think it's in my best interest now. Yeah. So this brings me back to, you know, many podcasts ago, if you remember, we talked about the Oregon lottery um, mm-hmm. where the government <clears throat> decides whenever two or more people with the same blood type need an organ, they'll just pick somebody at random, cut them up and, you know, save two people at the cost of one person. Now, assuming that organ transplantation is non-problematic in the sense like non-medically problematic, this actually saves more people than it hurts, Right. This is a utilitarian policy. Everyone is, your risk of death actually goes down under this policy. Now, what's wrong with this policy? It's a rights violation, right? It violates people's individual rights. So as long as we are willing to say that there is a difference between what's traditionally called an optimific account uh, or optimific policy, a policy that is better off for everybody and a policy that respects everybody's rights, I'm going to say that when you have to choose between those two policies, you should always choose the rights-based approach because as soon as you grant the state or, you know, the government, et cetera, the power to make you do things against your will for your own supposed best interest, you are going to find that that slope uh, gets very steep very quickly. Does anybody know? So I'm thinking of the voluntary approach as you were speaking, and I'm I'm trying to. I'm really battling on this because I don't feel super hard about the the two week thing because I, I I think I agree with some of that. It's just uh, what does the voluntary approach look like, right? And so then I started thinking about uh, was it uh, Sweden or um, who did the no the no lockdown over there in the, Sweden? Yeah. So. And I know I've heard, I haven't looked recently, but that their data was, you know, not too out of line with any other data. And so is that the rights-based approach that you're talking about? And does it have the outcomes? Now we have a little bit of evidence that way. But even prior to that is your argument that just this is the United States, we should have rights not being violated that way. Yeah, well, I I think the voluntary approach, and, and that's what I've been thinking of too. I think Justin would agree based on earlier comments that Drunk driving is is a problem still. You were only saying that maybe it's over-criminalized. And, and so you, I think you'd agree. Just like I think if you went to a public park and you knew you, t- you had coronavirus and you started going around coughing on people, that's also a problem. The, prob- the, the issue with taking that problem and saying, therefore, we need a law to prevent that is that it assumes A, that the law is gonna be overall beneficial and B, uh, it also ignores all the other possibilities. And so like Russ was saying, there's the chance for voluntary organization. One thing that helps this a whole lot is having private property rights, right? Walmart has the rights because it's actually their property. They own the land or they own the building or that at least they have the control legally over the piece of the building to say, if you don't come in with a mask on, we're going to make you leave. That's something that Walmart can do. Or when you enter, you willingly agree to acknowledge that you don't have coronavirus. And if we find out you do, we can sue you, something like that. All of that enables everyone's rights because you don't have to go into Walmart. No one's forcing you to do that. Likewise, uh, Walmart, you know, could choose to impose that on their customers or maybe they could decide, no, we actually don't want their coronavirus restrictions because that cuts sales too much. And then everyone would know, oh, well, Walmart's a place where you can go around without a mask and everyone can kind of make their own decision and weigh their risk. And so there's no violation of rights. 
So that's one thing where this becomes very tricky though, is there's a lot of places where we don't have private property. And so the blinds and the drunk drivers we were talking about earlier, be simple with like a private road system to get rid of this problem because then the private roads people could say, sorry, before you enter our road, you need to do a breathalyzer or you also can't be blind. You have to pass so, the vision test. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, something like that. But the or just know people might be drunk on these roads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or yeah, blind. exactly. Or blinds, that's right. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, could, you could have the opposite <laughs> exactly. arrangements yeah. and then people would be able to say, oh, this is one of the roads that they're letting like drunk people on. I'm not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And you know, that then no one's rights are being violated. The, the issue though, is we have lots of public spaces. And so I think when we have the public spaces, my, my deferment is never to go to the government first, but I think instead we should have social institutions, religious pressure, family pressure, other things that influence people's behavior. Uh, because I tend to think those things are less restrictive or less problematic. We don't often have family sponsored genocide. That's not something we have very often. So using the family to kind of police other people's behavior, I think that's a very effective method because giving power to the family doesn't tend to end in like massive scale tragedy, whereas we see that with the government sometimes. And so for me, the voluntary approach is first markets and then other institutions. And then if you've exhausted all possible options, then maybe there is a place for government to be involved. Uh, But I think we're certainly not at the place of exhausting all possible options. Yeah, the strongest law should uh, should stay in the smallest level of institutions, perhaps, yeah. right? Yeah, that's and right. That way you don't have the mass problems going on. So, well, I don't know if we got to where I wanted to get to. I thought we were going to have this rights uh, like argument. And I guess, is that where we leave it, Justin? Is just that I have the right to not be locked down and that's it? I'm a little unclear with the question. So that's the question. <laughs> I wanted a tagline to put on social media that says, lockdowns are against my rights. I have the right to not be locked down or some either a slogan or something. I mean, what's the pitch rather than, I think that we started off this argument that the pitch from economists and other people might be, well, look at the data. The data don't support this. It's very clear. And that, that argument's not working. So yeah. is, it, is it that simple? I guess, and I'm, I'm asking genuinely, is, is it that simple? We just say you have rights and you shouldn't, you should draw those lines or something. Lockdowns are a clear rights violation. They ought to be resisted and it's time to draw a line in the sand. And sell people on voluntary action. Let people choose, be free to choose. If we go back to Milton Friedman argument. Yeah, you uh, you know you weigh your own uh, your own risks. You should act accordingly. And, and if those risks are unknown, like I was pitching, that of how bad Corona is, and it might be super deadly or something, you once again choose. You either go outside or you don't go outside. It, it's all on you. Individual accountability. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and we don't look to the government to protect us. No, and you should be very wary of giving the government an inch because we know they take a mile. You give them two weeks, they take a year. all right on that note that sounds like the final word so we'll see i I feel like this one could go on a little bit more so maybe we'll we'll come up with some other things we're talking about doing the constitution later i can see some of these issues being uh, related to that so uh, that might be in the future and we thank you all for listening it's been a production of the gorton institute here at ottawa university if you find us on your uh, like meter at a five-star level or the best uh, that certainly helps other people find us and tell your friends too. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.